Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. When I'm not uh, working on this podcast, I am the administrator of a high school in Montreal. One of the important events of our school year is Remembrance Day. It's a big day. We always send a contingent to Ottawa as part of Operation Veteran to view the national ceremony and meet with other high school kids and vets at the National War Museum. Back at the school, though, during third period, which straddles uh, 11 o'clock, we have a ceremony with the entire population of the school present to hear readings, see presentations, and musical interpretations, and to hear a recital of In Flanders Fields, and to do the act of remembrance. Sometimes we get a veteran to speak. One year we got two. Some years we couldn't get one, so I would fill in with a little speech of my own in order to try to convey some of the historical significance of what we are trying to remember. In the telling, I would try to put the students in the shoes of the veterans when they were young. It's sometimes easy to forget that the vets were just kids, sometimes rowdy kids, when they were out there doing their thing. One time we had a vet in, and there was a time set aside for him to take some questions from a smaller group of students. One sweet little girl asked the question, So, how were the girls in England? I think she was expecting a vanilla answer about getting pecks on the cheek or kisses under the lamplight. Uh, nope. He answered without any beat or shame. Actually, we found the girls in England hardly moved around at all when you had them in bed. They just laid there. Uh, this wasn't the answer that young Katie was expecting. Anyway, in 2015, we didn't have a vet scheduled, and so I read a speech about Allied bombing raids, accompanied with a slideshow of appropriate images for the kids to watch. I think it's appropriate to share here today. For although this podcast mainly focuses on the machines, we have to remember that inside every one of those machines was one or more kids, either teenagers or young 20-year-olds. So, at this time of the year, I thought it would be appropriate to share the speech with you. And although it stresses the Canadian war effort, I think it stands in for the efforts of all the nations. I hope you enjoy it. In the 1960s, there was a slogan, Suppose they gave a war and nobody came. Well, that was a bit of a fantasy. On the other hand, how about if they held a war and the enemy soldiers had no bullets, or no airplanes, or no tanks? Now that would be almost as good. This was the dream of the airmen, and more specifically the bomber crews in World War II, and to this effort Canada contributed greatly. But to tell this story properly, one must back up somewhat to when the politicians and Air Force generals of World War II were young men, back to the First World War. Last year at Remembrance Day, I spoke of the life in the trenches of World War I. Some of you might remember. Many of you came up to me after the speech and told me how grossed out you were about learning how they had lived in the mud and barbed wire with the rats for weeks on end. If you had been a young man who had survived this ordeal and had come home to become a leader in your society, one of your main goals would probably have been to try to make sure that it never happened again. 
that the next generation, perhaps your own sons, would never have to experience the madness of trench warfare. But wishing doesn't make it so. What could be done? Although there was peace in the 1920s, there was still smoldering conflicts between nations. In fact, some politicians, like those in the Nazi party in Germany, saw this time as little more than an intermission between conflicts, as a time to build up and prepare for a shot to settle the unfinished grudges from the First World War. So how do you stop an enemy like that without going back to the trenches? Was it possible to fight and win a war without foot soldiers? Well, in the 1930s, there was something new, a new technology to call upon, the airplane. But wait, you say, there were airplanes in the First World War. And yes, there were. There were flimsy wood and canvas affairs that were mainly used in, for reconnaissance, but they couldn't decide battles. But by the 1930s, airplanes had advanced considerably. They were now all metal. They had new, more powerful engines. Some airplanes had four engines. They flew higher and faster and could carry tons of bombs, and some people said that there was no way to stop them. And this is what those politicians and Air Force generals latched onto when they tried to prevent their own sons from having to head out to the trenches, the bomber. They believed that the bomber would be able to fly over the enemy country and drop bombs only on the weapons factories. The plan was for no civilians to be harmed. You would warn the population ahead of time by flying overhead an hour or so before the main raid and dropping leaflets warning the factory workers to get out of the way. Some thought that even just a few days of aerial attack would be enough to make the enemy population panic and rise up against their own governments to stop the war. So when World War II broke out and the Nazis quickly overran most of Europe, the Allies, Britain and her Commonwealth, including Canada and later the United States, thought that these ideas were worth trying. Actually, they had very little choice. Hitler controlled all of Europe. There was to be no trench warfare after all, because the Nazis had already captured all of France and Belgium. So what to do? And what was Canada's part in it? The British started building big four-engine bombers as fast as they could. They built Stirlings and Halifaxes and Lancasters. And they started sending them over to Europe in the daylight to try to bomb weapons factories and they got shot down in droves. Unfortunately for them, the idea that the bomber would always get through wasn't true. Bombers, it turns out, could be shot down by fighters and anti-aircraft cannon. The losses became so bad that the British decided that they would have to fly when there was less chance of being seen. So, they painted their bombers black and they started to fly at night. And they asked for help. They needed a lot more airplanes, and they needed a lot more aircrew. And Canada answered the call. The British asked for us to build Lancasters, which Winston Churchill called their shining sword against the enemy. But Canada wasn't known as a high-technology place at the time. It was known as a country full of farmers and fur trappers and lumberjacks. Could Canada even build these super high-technology airplanes? A company in Toronto that was accustomed to building train cars, 
the National Steel and Car Corporation of Malton, Ontario, was picked and renamed Victory Aircraft. The British sent us the blueprints and flew one Lancaster over for us to use as a model and said, good luck. It took over a year to build the first one. First, we had to train over 10,000 new workers, many who had never touched, let alone flown in an aircraft before. About a quarter of the workers were young women who weren't even experienced in the workforce. But they got better at it, and in the end, the Canadian version of the Lancaster, which was called the Lancaster 10, was reputed to be a better quality than the original British version. At the peak of production, they were building one bomber per day to send to Europe. The other thing that Canada had was lots of space. Lots and lots of enemy-free space to train pilots and aircrew. Canada undertook the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan in order to train thousands and thousands of pilots and aircrew from scratch. In just a couple of years, we built 300 new airports and schools to train all those people, from their first flights in a Tiger Moth trainer, up to faster twin-engine planes, and then to navigation and bombing schools all over Canada. But what was it like to be one of these students? Firstly, remember that you're a kid, the same age as some of our students in grade 11, with exactly the same minds and exactly the same attitudes and faults and hopes and dreams, except that in World War II, you had to put aside all plans of jobs, college, marriage, family. You had to grow up a lot quicker. Terrible responsibilities had been placed on your shoulders. Many of these young men were a little older than you in grade 11. Most of them had never flown in an aircraft before. In fact, it was a level of technology far above them. You are used to the idea of flying and air travel. A more adequate comparison of them for you would be signing up to fly spaceships in a Star Command. So once you were trained, what would it be like to be on one of these nighttime raids? During the afternoon, you'd be summoned to a big room like this, where you'd wait for the commander to walk out onto the stage and open the curtain that would reveal the big map and the route of where you were going to fly tonight. It was all very theatrical. There might even be a groan from the crowd if the flight went particularly deep into Germany or into areas that were particularly well defended. And then you'd have your supper. Often they would be served fresh eggs. This may seem like a strange choice of special meal. However, in wartime, the eggs were rationed and so were quite rare. It was a treat to have fresh eggs. To many of the crew, it felt like their last supper. As it was getting dark, they'd get dressed. This type of flying was very, very different from anything you've ever experienced. These airplanes were unheated and unpressurized. It could get as cold as minus 50 Celsius where you were going, so they basically wore big snowsuits that were electrically heated. Above 10,000 feet, they would need to breathe oxygen from a mask, or they would pass out and be unconscious in 30 seconds. They were handed parachutes, although most of the time they wouldn't be wearing them as the spaces within the airplanes were too small to move around and wear a parachute. If trouble arose, they were supposed to snap on their chutes before bailing out. They would sometimes make jokes with the parachute-packing girl, saying, Give me a good one this time. The last one didn't work. 
They were given little survival kits that contained some chocolate, a tiny compass, a silk map. If they survived bailing out, they were expected to try to walk home. And once the night was inky black, they would execute a stressful takeoff. The airplanes were all overloaded with tons of high explosives, firebombs, flares, bullets, and hundreds of gallons of aviation gasoline. One wrong move and the entire thing would disappear in a massive, fiery explosion. The flights were long. Often they lasted eight hours, and they were stressful, no matter what member of the crew you were. The pilot, of course, had the worry of commanding the whole thing and making the right decisions that would keep his crew alive. There was no one to call for help, and he was a kid. There were often 800 to 1,000 airplanes involved in these operations, all timed to travel close together in the dark and arrive at the same place at the same time. The risk of collision was very real. The pilot would have to avoid flak explosions that were being fired at them. They would also have to avoid hundreds of searchlights that were being used to try to light them up. And if you got caught by a searchlight, then the flak would find you and blow you to pieces. If you were the navigator, it was your job to find a particular town in Germany with no moving map GPS and very few radio aids. And Europe had been blacked out, so you couldn't even see the lights of cities below you. You had to steer by the stars and whatever landmarks that you could find below. If you were a gunner, you were expected to stay awake and alert all night and stare into the darkness and look for enemy night fighters that had been sent up to try to kill you and your friends. You knew you would only have seconds to react if you did see something, and then you'd have to decide if it was a friendly airplane or not before opening fire. If you were the bombardier, the one who aimed the bombs, then you'd have to know that you were aiming tons of bombs at a city where there were people. Not enemy soldiers, but just old folks, women, children. You'd have to carry around the weight of your conscience, because in the end, everyone realized that it was impossible to just hit the factories. In the end, they were just trying to find, hit, and burn down the whole city. And things went wrong. Engines exploded, and oxygen masks failed, and planes got shot up and went on fire. Sometimes a friendly airplane above you would drop its bombs on you and rip off parts of your plane. Sometimes, if your plane was going to crash, you could get out and parachute to safety. Sometimes you couldn't get out and it would be a long, long five to ten minutes to wait on the way down for death. And if you were lucky and you got back to England and made a successful landing after being exhausted, it was with the knowledge that you'd have to do it again, tomorrow or maybe the next day. Back in the barracks, your friend's bed next to you might be empty because he never came back. Air Force policy was pretty brutal on this. They'd put a new guy there as soon as possible so that people wouldn't dwell on the loss. Before they shipped the missing man's stuff home, his friends would go through it to make sure there wasn't anything naughty in there to make his mother uncomfortable. Sort of like the 1940s version of clearing out your web browser history. Remember, they were kids. So, did the plan work? The best answer is that it didn't, and it did. The Air Force didn't win the war all by themselves. The German people didn't rise up and replace their government. 
they became very good at fixing damage in their weapons factories, and they even moved many of them underground to protect them from the bombing raids. But, on the other hand, when the Allied armies later went across Europe, they did so against an enemy that was greatly weakened by the bomber offensive. The Nazis couldn't move their armies around because the rail network had been bombed. They couldn't use many of their tanks and trucks because there was no gas, because the oil refineries had been blown up. And most significantly, the Allies knew that when they heard an airplane above them, that they were most likely friendly, as the German Air Force had no fuel to train pilots or fly operations. World War II ended much sooner and with many fewer casualties due to those kids in Bomber Command. So, on this Remembrance Day, please have a thought for those brave and scared Canadian kids who climbed into airplanes and flew off into dangerous and darkening skies, and especially think of the over 10,000 who never came back for a safe landing. They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them. <laughs>